I'm ready. Okay, cool. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, hang on, can I? Oh, I can't eat chips right now. No. You want to eat some chips before we start? We need a couple chips. Okay, we'll pause it. You can eat some chips and we'll resume. Okay. I'm ready to roll. Okay, there we go. <laughs> a little less problematic yeah. start to the show. There you go. Well, I have a feeling this one might be a little long. Okay. So we're just going to jump to the news right away. Hit me with the news. But actually, the first thing I have to do is not the news. It's a correction section. A correction section? Yes. Bit of a mea culpa for the mistakes that you made in the last episode. Because everyone knows that everything I said was dead on. Okay. Well, I kind of said <laughs> that it was going to be wrong. It was about the, the Nashville prostitution laws. Oh, okay. I said I was going to look them up and find the correct thing, but it turned out I just needed to read a whole article and I didn't want to do that. So That's I fine. just kind of skimmed over it. But, so actually, after further research, before, as you recall, I said like prostitution was like legal in Nashville from like X year to like... 1917 mm -hmm. it was really legal for like two years it was legal or illegal legal legal for two years so in a wild before two years. the union army during the civil war occupied nashville in february of 1862 there was about like 200 sex workers that like lived in nashville 200, and yeah. so when the union soldiers arrived in what they called smoky row which was like pretty close to where we live now which was located which is in downtown nashville mm -hmm. obviously the number of sex workers grew to about 1,500, and many of which were women trying to provide for their husbands after their husbands went to war. One in 11 Union soldiers ended up catching an STI, mostly gonorrhea and syphilis. And George Spaulding, who was the Union Provost Marshal, gathered up the sex workers and forced them into a ship called the Idaho, spelled I-D-A-H-O-E. Oh, okay. And the Idaho headed towards Louisville, but was rejected as it was in Cincinnati and other ports. So they pretty much just shipped him up the river and were like, get these sex workers out of Nashville because they're infecting all our soldiers. And in an attempt to just ship away their problems, other cities along the river refused to take what was known as the floating whorehouse. And since no other ports would accept the boat, it returned back to Nashville and then they decided that since they couldn't get rid of these sex workers, that they would just pretty much legalize prostitution for a little bit to regulate the STI problems. And in August of 1863, Spalding changed his tactic to fight this STI problem, which was probably started because the soldiers came into town. And the hospital was created for the sex workers with venereal diseases, and it was funded by licenses, which these sex workers had to purchase, and it was required for them to practice. And they had to undergo regular health checks to make sure they weren't, like, spreading STIs. Hmm. And this actually ended up working out. The STI cases fell, and the practice kind of continued on, and even Memphis adapted getting, like, licensing. Mm -hmm. And it was discontinued, like, two years after the war. But it was pretty progressive for their day. I mean, it seems to me like a lot of the great developments in human history have been a result of people shipping other people away like you have australia which was literally the result of the british shipping criminals off to an island yeah that that's one and number, we got vegemite and we got vegemite you know um, number two escape from new york with kurt russell okay in the year in the in, in the far distant future i don't know what year year it is in that uh, movie slash you know accurate depiction of our future you know, they put all the criminals on Manhattan Island, you know? You could have, they could have picked a different island to put them on. Well, like Rikers? Alcatraz. Alcatraz. <laughs> uh, well, we, Hawaii. We'll, we'll see. Okay, well, you know, I mean, in terms of Alcatraz, they did escape from L.A., you know. Um, earthquakes had kind of separated the, you know, California from it. But anyway, you know, it just seems like you can never really go wrong with just taking people you don't like and putting them on a boat and just getting rid of your problems that way is what I, you know, what I would say. I mean, you know? we tried to do that with all of our garbage and now we just have a giant floating garbage island out there in the Pacific somewhere. Well, another, another one. Um, Moses, I believe, was put into a basket and sent down the Nile River. We all know how that one ended. How? I didn't pay attention to church. Well, you know... Let my people go. All right. You know, go down Moses. Well, prostitution okay. <laughs> is still illegal in America, except for Nevada, which some counties allow for regulated brothels. And decriminalizing prostitution has led to lower SDI rates in other areas of the world. And this was all from a History.com article by Aaron Blakemore, which 
I read to correct my false claim in my last episode. Oh, Lord Pharaoh, let my people go. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for that. So now we're on to the actual news. No okay. more correction section. It's news time. Everything else that was said in the last episode was dead on. Ready for the first news story? Hit me. Another funeral home discovers women presumed dead is still alive. An 82-year-old woman was pronounced dead at Water's Edge Rehab and Nursing Center in New York at 11.15 a.m. on January 5th. She was taken to the O.B. Davis Funeral Home at 1.30 p.m. that discovered breathing at 2.09 p.m. Re- wait, so wait, wait, wait. did they not check her pulse before any, any time before that? I guess that they just thought she was dead and they took her to the funeral home and then they discovered she wasn't dead. When you say take her to the funeral funeral home, had they already put her like in like the little in the box or the the, the drawer? No, the, I think they like had her in lieu in processing. Like she wasn't like in a morgue. Like kind of, she wasn't in like the. the but they were getting her cleaned up, right? Well, a similar incident occurred in Iowa a few days before, and was the home was fined ten thousand dollars. So a sixty-six year old woman was found dead. Air quotes. On January 3rd, in her hospice facility, she was placed in a body bag, taken to Ankeny Funeral Home and Crematory, where workers discovered she was still breathing, and she died on January 5th, a few days later, unfortunately. Uh-huh. So this lady was in the body bag. Okay. So, I mean, I think, like, funeral homes, I don't know if they're, like, like, hospice centers. I don't know how well they actually treat these old people or, like, terminally ill people. Like, I think once one, like, they think they kind of kick the bucket. They're like, oh, thank God, get him out of here. Well, that one showed up in a body bag. You know, that, that, that one, that, that's just like, you know, you rac- you got a raccoon on the side of the road. He's put it in a trash bag and you kind of send it off to the compactor, you know? But that one get her to the compactor, though. Well, well she, you know, she woke up and started, you know. No. <gasps> you know, sorry. Yeah, but, so, sorry, blew it out. So then I started thinking, does this happen a lot? And I looked up, yeah. and apparently this happened again in August of 2020 in Southfield, Michigan. Yes. Mm-hmm. To a 20-year-old woman. The woman was suffering from cerebral palsy and was having serious breathing issues in her home, leading for her family to call the paramedics. Mm-hmm. So the first responders came, and on the phone, they called a doctor who wasn't at the scene and explained to the doctor that the woman had been unresponsive for 30 minutes and there was no signs of life. And so the paramedics pretty much got the all clear from the doctor, who was not present, that she was dead. And she was taken to a funeral home where the staff noticed her chest moving and was transported to a hospital. And she did pass a few months later. But her family has filed a $50 million federal lawsuit against the city of Southfield and the four first responders at the scene. So I guess this kind of still happens. Yeah. Like, you'd think that you just checked her pulse or, like, you know... Before I die, I told you this already, I want it to be donated to science. Okay. But before they cut me open or do anything funny, before I get diddled whatsoever, mm-hmm. I want you to put like a round through my skull. A round Because I want to make skull. sure I'm dead first. Wow. Especially if for some reason somebody cremates me against my will. I want to be dead first. I mean, yeah, that seems reasonable. And I want any of these hacks well, that can't tell if a person's dead or not. To send me off in a body bag when I'm still alive. Well, you know, speaking of, there's a good, um, there's a good, I, I can't remember exactly when it happened, but it, somewhere in the 1800s, you know, when I think either tuberculosis or, uh, you know, just the, the diseases that were generally just referred to as the consumption were going around, yeah. you know, like, heavens to bed, it's consumption. <laughs> um, there was, there was a case of a young man who caught it, you know, and he was so... The consumption? The consumption, you know. And he was so under the weather that he... Was just paralyzed essentially, just totally yeah. unresponsive. But he was, but he was awake. You know, he was awake and alive, right? And um, they declared him dead, and he was put into a um, a coffin, you know. But apparently, he was conscious the whole time, and they, and they, you know, they know this because apparently, the uh, the hearse driver, you know, which which back in that day it was more like a carriage, you know, like a, it was a horse. Bring out His your name dead, is Tom. like bring out your dead, you know, whatever. He would every so often kind of get enough strength to kind of like bang on the bang on the coffin you know and the hearse uh, driver's just like oh another pothole this hearse driver did not make money he only he only made money for everybody delivered to the you know to the cemetery and this so this hearse driver knew that this person actually was alive yet very ill 
but still, but did not want to take him out. $3. I mean, he, you know, it's a lot of work, you know, putting, you know, putting him in the, in the box, moving the box all the way over there. Anyway. Sounds like he was being lazy and he wasn't helping him. You know, that too. Um, anyway, it was this whole thing, like the guy's banging on there, you know, this people are kind of wondering, is that that guy alive in there? The Hearst driver, like, you know, was like, nah, he's dead. Eventually, anyway, the. Um, the story does not end happily. Uh, the guy did get put in the ground and no. was buried alive and died like that. Well, I like all. You'll have to look that one. You'll have to look on that. No, I'll have to do that. People like buried alive because mm-hmm. then they there was that whole thing where like people were getting dug up because like a, a medium or a psychic like thought they were still alive and they had like scratch marks inside their coffin or like they at one point people were so scared of getting buried alive that they like put bells like with little like strings down into the coffin so if the person like woke up they could like ring their little bell you know mm-hmm. it'd be an interesting episode yeah. i'm but. trying to remember why they why we know about the story i think it's because i think some, suddenly the fact of like eventually someone like came and made made them like dig up the body or like, exhume it you know to try and save them and he was dead but they saw like scratch marks yeah, or like something they, they eventually they, they found something to the effect of his that's being alive. that's why we know that story today that's so that. scary yeah that is why I want you to shoot me and then put me in the ground. Or on a slab. Whatever you want. First thing tomorrow. It's on. All right. Thank you. We'll write it down. We'll write it down. So that was came from the Huffington Post. But next news. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So a mystery man leaves human jawbone at a California police station. A human jawbone? So an unidentified man walked into the San Bernardino, California police station, which is about 60 miles east of Los Angeles, on Thursday, leaving a human jawbone and other animal remains. And, like, from the article, I don't think they, like, noticed right away that there was, like, probably human bones in mm-hmm. this. Which, I don't... It seems like a red flag for someone to just drop bones off of oh, any species origin at the gas... At the police station. Last case of a man, you know, dropping his jaw was, uh, you know, the sheriff when he saw Jessica Simpson in Dukes of Hazard. I don't know. That was a good one. Thank you. <laughs> So the police released an image of the man and were asking for help identifying him. But then I read an article because I saw this happen like a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And then I looked it up and like on Friday and the police department stated via Twitter that they'd located the man in the tweet. Oh. And then they haven't said anything about it since. You guys have been walking on the driver since. Well, no, he, he left the jaw at the police station. Well, but how is he, how is he managing uh, after that? The police, I go, I don't know, they nabbed him, but they haven't, they haven't said anything else. But I looked at it right before we started filming this. In what state was this man? California. No. In what physical, oh. <laughs> emotional even okay, state? Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know, they didn't say. Huh. They've been very vague. So, I'm curious to see if this unfolds. So, that was all the news I had for today. Oh, just, we'll just <laughs> jump right into the tale then. That's, well, I, that's why I was kind of anticipating that this might be a little exciting and long, because... This is something that you, I think, first brought to my attention. Was the first time I heard about it. But the Minnesota Iceman. Oh, Minnesota Iceman! Ah, oh. one of the one of the so best cute. tales of you know cryptid wonder and merriment. Okay, well, our story begins with the University of Minnesota zoology student named Terry Cullen. So he paid a quarter to see the cyberski creature at Chicago's International Livestock Exhibition. Mm-hmm. So it was a complete carcass of a hairy 1.8 meter 5'9 mm-hmm. human, male humanoid in a lit encapsulated glass top 3,000 pound block of ice. The block containing the creature was paraded across America in shopping malls, state fairs, etc. Starting in 1967 by Frank D. Hansen, who was an ex-Air Force pilot from Rolling Stone, Minnesota. And Terry Cullen, this student, was an aspiring naturalist. So he informed Dr. Ivan T. Sanderson and Dr. Bernard Hoovelman, Hoovelman, yep. who was cryptozoologists about the body, and they arrived to look at the exhibit in December of 1968. The Iceman was being held in a refrigerated trailer at Hansen's farm back in Minnesota, and the exhibition owner, Frank Hansen, claimed that he was only the temporary ward of the carcass as it belonged to an undisclosed owner who was rumored to be Jimmy Stewart, an American actor and military pilot. Who apparently has a distinctive drawl. I didn't know who it was. Jimmy Stewart? He was yeah. a... He's he like an old-timey actor. He's a musician or an actor. Yeah, okay. He's an actor. I, th- I, 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 I think one of the things that's really going to unfold is just the fact that uh, Hanson is just, an, is just a legendary flim-flam man. 
Yes. You know, he is an absolute... There's a lot of flim-flam people in there's, this story. He, this guy is just... And this is like really just one of the last sort of periods in time when you could just go out there and be like, step right up, step right up, I've got the missing link right here. And you could really just throw together a career like that, you know? Yeah, and I mean, people were like, sounds good. Yeah, if, if, if I could just go outside and just kind of like just, you know, sell my wares on the streets, you know? Like, step right up, step right up, you know, see the amazing, you know... Flying beagle, and then you just like throw them across beagle, the street. And I just huck the, you know, huck smoke <laughs> across the street, you know? Like, I would do that. It's just people, you, know, you, just, people. Get arre- you just get arrested. You don't yeah. make a quarter, you get arrested now, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I don't know. This I, I just it seems like a simpler time. I wish you could still do this. Absolutely. So Hansen once claimed that the body was found by a Russian seal hunting vessel floating in an ice block off the Siberian coast in the Bering Sea. Then he changed his story and said that a Japanese whaling ship found the carcass. And then he changed it again and said it was found in a deep freeze facility in Hong Kong. And then it got rumored that it had been shot on a hunting trip at the Whiteface Reservoir in Minnesota. And then the most popular origin story is that it was found from a Vietnam... It was flown in from Vietnam in a body bag. And it was traced back to the story of a huge ape killed in Dang Gang, Dang Gang, mm-hmm. Vietnam in 1966. And Hansen said that apparently... Like, or I guess Hansen was apparently stationed like close to this area where this like ape was killed. Hansen apparently... Um, was a little bit of a mastermind and it was very complicated and I think Hoovelman kind of outlines it later and said that the entire drug trafficking operation out of Vietnam was built off their procedure to get this body out of Vietnam and smuggle it into the U.S. Right, right. That's, so apparently it was yeah. a, a pretty big hubbub to get this carcass through customs. Yeah, Even that, well, that's one of the big sort of historic sort of explanations um, for his sort of evasiveness over the origins of the Minnesota Iceman was because, you know, if you if, if you were to take it as true that he, you know, uh, you know, caught it, you know, overseas in Vietnam, you know, the smuggling was extremely illegal. So he couldn't, you know, very well mm-hmm. just come right out with that with that statement, yeah. you know, Um so, you know, that's, uh, you, know, perhaps, you know, perhaps there's some truth to it. Who knows? Yes, exactly. So in 1968, Sanderson and Uvelman um, examined the Iceman and in December at Hansen's home for three days. The men illustrated the creature so it could be later described in technical literature. And it was described as a barrel-chested figure with a thick neck and large hands and feet. The hands had long, thin thumbs, which apparently had manicured nails and there was a callus pad on the outer, like, ulnar side of the palm, which kind of depicted that maybe walked mm-hmm. in, like, all fours. Yeah. It had a broad face with a short upturned nose, like a little pig nose, and a prominent brow. And one eye sagged from its socket, resulting from a gunshot wound to the back of the head. It sounds like Gina Carano. And the body <laughs> had a fractured, um, like, forearm, resulting in, like, a, a little bend. Like a, like a second elbow. Mm-hmm. And during their time there, the glass case apparently kind of cracked at one point, and it smelled of decomposing flesh. So a little stinky. Mm-hmm. But the cryptozoologist Huvelmans and Sanderson um, spoke of their encounter to the media, and they kind of later described Uvelman as the father of cryptozoology. So apparently he's a pretty big deal. Wow. Um, Sanderson at one point called it Bozo, the figure he gained of Bozo. Bozo. And apparently that was kind of, they didn't like that because then it kind of illegitimized the whole thing. But they still kind of pushed forward and Hubelman published a paper in the Bulletin of the Royal Institute of National Sciences of Belgium, which is a scientific journal, and he published it in 1969. And we'll refer to it as Uvelman 1969. And so he, in this paper, named the species Homo pygnoides, which means ape-like man. And he later added on that this was a living form of the Neanderthal. And it included a brief description of the specimen, but apparently was like writing up a few hundred page long like monograph of the Iceman, which wasn't released with this original publication. But he was like working on it. Because I think like they found this and they wanted to like drop their paper really fast. Right, before like right. anyone else stole it from them. And Uvelmans wrote... L'homme de Neanderthal et toujours vivant in 1974, which was co-authored by Voris Porchnev, a Russian historian, e- economist, and crypto-hominid expert. The Neanderthal man is still alive, just in a different form, was kind of like this whole thing. So there's okay. a theory that like 
this ice man that they found was like a descendant or like the last like Neanderthal. Or the, like the, evidence the, the that Neanderthals link. are still alive. The yes. missing link, perhaps. Okay. That's where we are going, yes. So Dr. Sanderson, who was a science editor of the Argosy magazine, and, TV, and he was a TV personality, told the world of their discovery. He guested on Johnny Carson's The Tonight Show during Christmas week of 1968, chatting about their discovery. And in his 1969 article the in the Argosy magazine, he asked the question, is the missing is this the missing link between man and ape? And he answered his own question by saying, "Let me say simply that one look was enough to convince us that this was, from our point of view at least, the genuine article." So he confirmed that they believe that it was the missing link between man and ape. I like how both these guys like they're like established scientists. They were doctors in front of their name, but you can tell neither of them are exactly. Harvard professors. No, I think yes. I think this Hoovelman guy was more definitely more like scientific, scientific air quotes around it yes. based, and he like was publishing his papers and wanted to like get the facts, but he was still like writing about cryptids. Right. And the Sanderson guy was like, "Put me on TV, like I'm ready right. to be a star," kind of thing. <laughs> In the whole time, this Hanson dude did not want these two doctors air quotes around doctors. They do have they do have doctorate degrees, so like, no air quotes, I guess. I don't know what their degrees are actually in. You should probably figure that out. But you can you they can are go doctors. online. Like I could get a PhD, I believe, in like you know esoteric studies, and it takes about three weeks. You no, know? I think you can. Yeah, you can do it pretty quickly. But so Hansen did not want the two doctors to go public that the creature was authentic, which they obviously ignored because they wrote a paper and went on a bunch of TV shows. The Smithsonian Institute caught wind of the body and wanted to come examine it, but Hansen refused. And Hansen was worried because, yes, they smuggled it apparently out of Vietnam. And the creature had two high-velocity bullet holes in its head. Mm-hmm. So they were like, if it's an animal that's illegal, you also smuggled it out of Vietnam. Slash, what if they rule it's a person and you have just like a dead body? So Hansen was like, keep it on the DL kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway. It's a lot of observance of human rights for Vietnam. At that time, I think know? things were pretty like <laughs> loose. In yeah, Vietnam I would say you're time. assuming a lot of uh, yeah critical nature. Over that, yeah. You know? So eventually, <laughs> a man named John John Napier, who was a primatologist with the Smithsonian, um, was very who was very interested in crypto humanoids, was invited to come examine it. He stated when immediately when he saw it that it was fake and it was a latex model. Hansen said that he replaced the original with a model. For he was afraid of being found guilty of like killing a human. And Howard Ball was stated to have made this model. And Hansen said he had the model made by Ball or whatever and made out of rubber and hair in 1967, which he swapped for the real thing in 1969, right before this John Napier guy came. Mm-hmm. And the corpse was rumored to have been buried in the woods or returned to its original movie star owner, Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Stewart. Kuvelman supported that Napier saw what like what Napier saw was different from what they had previously seen, so he like swapped it after the two doctors looked at it, but before this John guy came. And they noted at least fifteen discrepancies between the genuine genuine air quotes Iceman <laughs> corpse and the model that Napier saw. Photos of the Iceman vary showing like the face and body may have like varied just like in positioning and like some pictures, the mouth is open and other ones there it's closed. Mm -hmm. And this was then later explained by Hansen that thawing and freezing the model again could like change for its like, its look. Right. So like, cause he would bring it on the road and it would thaw a little bit and then he'd stick it in his freezer and he would freeze it back up. Yeah, so it really I mean, was not, like, keeping the integrity of the specimen, Well, you know? th- thawing and freezing is also somewhat, you know, like I said, it's, it's somewhat convenient because uh, I've heard one of the other sort of arguments against the um, the second, you know, or, like, you know, the, the switch or, like, you know, the... Um, like or, it being real at one point and then the model being seen later kind of one thing? One of the big evidentiary things is uh, the fact that, yeah, the... Um, is whether or not the uh, the strains like when you when you freeze ice it makes these little lines yeah you know? like striations or whatever yeah these striations yeah. and one of the big evidentiary sort of things that they considered was um, these striations uh, in the ice and did okay. did they change so they actually examine the ice and not like the body did they did they change or did they not change you know okay. but but between when he um, you know but you know before and after when he said he switched the uh, switched body okay yeah interesting interesting yeah. yeah. But yeah, so now it's kind of generally believed that this is a hoax. 
And to some. To some, yes. So what is believed to be the original model, like the original fake thing, mm-hmm. like the, the thing that Napier saw, was put up for sale online in 2013 and is now owned by Steve Busti and is in the Museum of Weird in Austin, Texas. Have you seen that? I have walked past that place. It's right on 6th Street. It's, it's actually, in particular, it's in an area called Dirty 6th Street. That sounds fun. Which is where, man, if you just want some cheap and hard street drugs and to talk to someone who's 17 years old, you know. I'm not really making this sound like a very appealing say, place. You sound like you frequented this area. Now I'm nervous. It, you know, it was just like it Questioning was like, our living situation. It was like Bourbon Street. You know, it was just a really funky part of town. You okay. know, um, and uh, but anyway, but I would walk that past that place like you know all the time. You know, just when you're going out and just this really cool sort of museum and the weird kind of tourist trap place. You know. Why it's just amongst all these bars down there, I, I could never really figure out. You well, know? I mean, what drunk people like to look at, maybe the missing link frozen in a big chunk of ice. It perhaps. was never it was never open at night, oh. though. It was open during the day. It was very confusing. I always wanted to go in there. Um, but it's never I, open. <laughs> and I've never, you know, yeah. And I, so, you know, maybe when we, maybe when we go. I'll, I'll go look at it. Maybe I would when love we take to a visit to Austin, we will have to do that, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I guess this, what is in the Museum of Weird is said to look identical to what the like model or what Napier kind of Mm -hmm. debunked at one point. And Uvelman's book was eventually, his like Huvelman's 1968 or whatever, Mm -hmm. was eventually translated from French to English in 2015 by Paul LeBlanc, who was an oceanographer, oceanographer day, sea and lake monster expert by night. (laughs) In his spare time and cryptozoologist slash author Lauren Coleman, this newly translated version of the, which is called Uberman's 2016, mm-hmm. was retitled Neanderthal, the Strange Saga of the Minnesota Iceman. Huh. So kind of before, like in earlier articles, it was kind of like a, a roadblock that this original, like his original work was in French because people were like, oh, can't read French. Like, what do you do? And now like, I, it I got eventually do. translated. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It got eventually translated in this kind of like research because people are like, mm-hmm. oh, I can read this now. Yeah. English people speaking, you know, can't speak <laughs> another language. There was a falling out, apparently, too, between the two, Uvelman and um, Sanderson, because he repeatedly states that some of Sanderman's statements are unwise. He doesn't agree with them. So I guess, because Sanderson seemed to kind of just, like, drum up interest, and he kind of wanted the clout from the Iceman, and Uvelman was more interested in well, science. Well, as we know about the UFO community, as well as the cryptozoologist community, uh, their greatest enemies are not, in fact, the wide range of population who doesn't believe in them. It is, in fact, themselves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they, themselves, yeah, and each other. Yep. It's just a hot mess. Yeah. It's a trash fire. So, yeah, Sanderson believed the Iceman was not a Neanderthal, rather like a member of the Erectus lineages. So there was a little bit of science bickering in there, but they just eventually had a falling out. And after their reputations kind of both took a hit, after this was like... They were like, you guys are supposed to be doctorates. Like, how can you think this wax figure or whatever is real? But in this new translated version that we found out, Uvelman's outlines his dedication to the Iceman. So eventually after, like, this thing kind of fell out, like, he kind of, like, publicly was like, yeah, it's a model. Like, it's not real. But he kind of, when they read this through this, like, paper that he wrote, he keeps supporting this, that it was real. And he spent a year generating a detailed illustration of the Iceman. He states that this is because he hopes the body will someday end up in a zoological institution, not because he believed that it, in fact, was a hoax. So he, like, started writing this, like, extensive document on, like, detailing, like, a new species that was found. Mm -hmm. Not, like, kind of insinuating that it was a hoax. Mm -hmm. He also states that there was no replacement model and that the Iceman changed form, like, from the opening and closing of the mouth due to the freezing and thawing. And the real corpse was hidden in plain sight rather than being hidden by Hansen or, like, given back to the real secret owner. And the book details how parasites were seen on the body and vegetable matter was seen in the teeth, indicating that it was originally a corpse. And he believed that even after him and his ex-partner Sanderson pronounced that it was a replica, it was still real. So he kind of, like, doubles back and said that, like, it was real the whole time. And that it was never a replica. Well, once again, you know, we, you know, in our, in our UFO and cryptozoological, you know, communities, um, if there was, if there, there's one thing we don't have, you know, we got some firm ideas, but we never have very firm ground to stand on. You got to pivot, you know, you got to present an idea, 
And then as soon as one comes to that idea, you got to pivot a little bit, you know? Yes. Then pivot back to where you started, you know? Yes. And pivot again. That's. Know? It seemed like he was doing this pivoting, like, in the limelight, but in his writing, he was just keep chugging along with, like, the same idea. I mean, and, that's like, the way to do it. it was widely, yeah. like, disproving because people were like, this is obviously not real. And the whole time he was like, no, it's real. Like, it's the real corpse. And they're like, it's real obviously fake. in French, though. You're right. Which is... <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but so eventually, kind of unfortunately, the he kind of also details how this idea of this like him like supporting this this whole time was kind of summed up to his daughter's sudden death back home was very traumatic for him. So we might have not been in the right headspace. We all, we've all been there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But Huberman's book also details how this idea of the march of progress, which is like the thing you see from like the ape. Kind of like standing up to the man, you know? Um, Meaning that humans were more evolved than other hominins and hominids, which I don't really know what the difference is. Hominims and hominids. A homonym is a sort of a linguistic thing we learn in vocabulary class. Homonyms, not homonym, whatever. Homonyms, hominids, and primates. M. Night Shyamalan. Sure. Timothy Chalamet. Homonym. Continue, please. All right. (laughs) So this is influenced by social and cultural bias, and this is disagreeable. So Huberman said that he had a hypothesis that Neanderthals were actually still alive. So they didn't, like, evolve and whatever kind of Uh. evolved. He thinks that this, they simply acquired a hairy pelt and became more of the typical cryptid Bigfoot or Iceman that we see today. After evolving from their ancestors, more like Homo sapiens. So we kind of split. People became people. Homo sapiens became people. And these, like, Neanderthals just became Bigfoot. And moved to Illinois, where they now live in great population in the city of Chicago. Exactly. So this is called dehumanization. And they abandoned material culture and took more of a bestial way of life, rewarding to a more bestial form. And these Neanderthals still survive today in a more, more remote forest and mountain ranges and live in an antisocial nocturnal lifestyle to avoid interactions with their cousin Homo sapiens. Hmm, okay, so he's so he so he's more saying they're still alive and it's kind of the the Yeti, the yeah. Vietnamese rock ape, yep. you know, they're whatever. They're living in Vietnam, they're living in the Alps, they're living in Idaho. Orange Beach, Alabama. I've seen some pretty big hairy dudes. Some of them, I think, do diverge, and they really like that spring break lifestyle. Good and handle. now they're a skunk ape. Yeah, you know. And they just run around and are stinking, crushing Bud Light limes. And they're interesting. Interesting. So that was so that was his theory, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So after the cryptozoologist's examination, especially Uwamin's, so since it was found in like Vietnam, this image of like this like Asian crypto humanoid kind of caught on. So this person named. Element Luce Wisawa, I'm guessing this is a German person. Okay. There's a lot of very complicated names in this. (sighs) Supported this description of like a dark furred, barrel chested, upturned nose crypto hominid who was, this was supported by ancient art in 1994. And this knowledge of Homo pugnoides, which is what they called, they like gave the species of the Iceman, Mm -hmm. what has existed through history and Bigfoot. More properly termed crypto hominids are seen all over the world, and this isn't like a new thing. So Boris Porchnev, Dmitry Bailanov, and Marie-Jean Kaufman collected reports of wildman sightings from the Caucasus to Mongolia. So this was kind of like in that you know, region of yeah. Asia. These sightings were similar to the H. pugnoides and were interpreted as being the same species. So pretty much saying that People were like collecting reports of seeing a figure that looked like the Iceman from the same yeah. region. So they think there's more of them. Jody Magnerner, a, a dead herpetologist who studies reptiles and amphibians. Have you, have, have you, have you pronounced a single last name correctly? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> what are you, what are you, Magrenner? Magrenner. Margot. Roby is what you're trying to say. She does study reptiles and amphibians. Collected over 20 reports of the Bar Menu, which is a wild man with similar features to H. Pignoides in that area. Uh-huh. Darren Nash, whose article I said <laughs> called People Were Picking and Choosing the Features That Matched the Pignoides Concept, and they were being led astray by a mistaken assumption that this it, the Iceman, is, was a real animal. So he was pretty much saying that people were like 
just being like, oh, they found this Iceman. I'm just going to link my research to like kind of look like this so it like supports it. Kind right, of. right. There's yeah. people jumping on the, the bandwagon. Well, I mean, if you subscribe to the um, if you subscribe to the belief system that you know the Bigfoot is really just a you know a shadow or a reflection of an interdimensional sort of creature kind of passing in and out of our reality, then I think it really affords you a lot of leeway in terms of like you know little differences in geography and space and. I think time. this whole past like four and a half minutes of me pronouncing people's names wrong and really like butchering pretty much everything in this was me just saying that there's a bunch of other cryptozoologists who just kind of jumped on the bandwagon and it led it kind of stirred up the the Bigfoot community a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think depending on where you are in geography, there's just different local legends of a big ape man, which you know, you know, frankly to me that that really substantiates the notion of some distinct hominid then then really refutes it you know the the, the fact that it's more archetypical than not you know you know suggests that something's going on you know i think i actually think that his like theory on like dehumanization was actually kind of interesting that like at some point there was like a divergence of like people who people homo sapiens chose Mm -hmm. a not that i believe in this but (laughs) that chose a more like structured and social lifestyle Mm -hmm. went one way and then like other the Neanderthals or whatever that wanted a more like isolated, preferred not to mm-hmm. drive cars and eat with forks, no. chose a different lifestyle and just moved out to Bozeman. Well, we were just That's watching. Cool. The, we were just watching this on on, on television uh, last night. You know the, uh, the 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 pike species gets all. You know, there's kind of an average species of the pike and there's different strains. But I guess when we were watching uh, what is this, this show with uh, Jeremy Wade, you know Jeremy Wade. Some of that. Um, <laughs> there was a species of pike that became, uh, you know, uh, isolated under the right conditions that became totally genetically distinct from the from from the other from from the kind of the average part well, of the middle. I pike, think that you know? was part of. We were talking about the Galapagos. I think Darwin did like a research somewhere where there was these like birds that they realized were of the same species, but they for some reason got kind of like geographically separated if i'd really paid attention and took notes in biology i would remember this but there's a term where like a species will get geographically separated Mm -hmm. and say a river gets created and they can't cross it Mm -hmm. like one side has more nuts that they eat and the other side has this different kind of nut Mm -hmm. and like one bird has a bigger nut to eat so they develop a bigger beak and they're still the same species but like and nothing really changed except their environment which led them to evolve into pretty much a and eventually two separate species. And eventually one of those species just starts traveling through space and time and, yeah. you know, um, this is just, and then, and, then, and then that's why we can't ever get them on camera. You're right. That's exactly They're it. just too sneaky. Yeah. Too sneaky. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so today the Minnesota Iceman, apparently the replica, resides in Steve Boosty's Museum of Weird in Austin, Texas, as I said. And Steve apparently first laid eyes on the Iceman in 1974 when he was four or five years old and he always had been interested in creatures such as dinosaurs. The natural progression led him to be obsessed at one point with Bigfoot. And his aunt, being a star aunt, heard of a tractor trailer that was coming to town and would stop on a tour holding something her nephew would surely be into. And he saw the Minnesota Iceman in the parking lot of a Kmart in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And it was displayed as the creature on ice. And so he said that he went inside a dark tractor trailer, which... Seems like a great way to abduct children. Like, mm-hmm. I would get abducted if somebody's like, you want to see a Bigfoot? And I'd be like, yeah, let me at it. <laughs> and then I'd be kidnapped. And he was led into a big frozen box with, like, glass on top. And all these adults were, like, shuffling around trying to look down into the top of this thing. And Steve eventually got a good look at it and screamed when he saw it and everyone laughed at him. But years later, he kind of thought about this again. It's a memory of that tremendous moment in the Kmart parking lot. And he researched the sideshow business, checking to see where the Iceman was. But he had apparently disappeared for 40 years. And then he found it online, getting auctioned off on eBay in 2013. And he bought it. And it now lies in a temperature-controlled chamber under ice in Texas. What are like a what are like a weird like you know you don't want to meet your heroes moment? Yeah. Where like this thing was like this like mythological Iceman. Eventually, he sees it going for you know. 10 grand on eBay, mm. you know. <laughs> Where do you get, like, the little nest egg to buy this thing in the first place? I mean, he's a man who owns, like, a, you know, mu- you much know like Ripley's museum, a Ripley's of Believe It or Not, on 6th Street in Austin, Texas. I think he was doing pretty well before and after. That's fair. You know? That's fair. 
I guess. Well, I, I kind of wrote an additional little segment because I thought this would take a lot longer, but we actually kind of blazed through this. So I have another little frozen story for you. Oh, please tell so me. So we talked about this when we visited Colorado. We went to Netherland, Colorado. Oh. And we saw, you made me look, oh, look at this. The frozen dead guy that yes, resides yes. in Netherland, Colorado. Oh, more names you're not going to be able to pronounce. God, Perfect. No. I love I, it. Well, how... I type these in to look them up, and they don't really have the pronunciation. How am I supposed to figure it out? So I just sounded out like Evilman's. Evilman. I don't know. So hit me. Frozen dead guy. So Grandpa Bretto is over 110 years old, and in his life, he was born in Ifsif Jordan, Romstel, which is a which is in Western Norway, and he was born on February 28th of 1900. He painted, fished, skied, hiked all the mountains in the region frequently. He married his wife, Anna, in late 1920s, and they had two beautiful children together. He was the director of Parks and Recreation in Bayram County, Norway, for over 30 years and ended up retiring in 1967. Grandpa Bredo Morstroll died in November 6, 1989, from a heart condition at his family's mountain retreat in Norway. Very sad. So The end. Yes, but not the end. <laughs> so after his death, he was quickly packed onto dry ice, which was not ideal as cryogenically frozen bodies are required to be frozen immediately after death to stop decay. When Then he was shipped to the Trans-Time Cryonic Facility in Oakland, California, where he sat on liquid nitrogen for four years. So he was shipped from Norway mm -hmm. to Oakland, California. Then he was moved to Colorado in 1993 to stay at the home of his daughter, Aud Monstrel, and his grandson, Taigev. Yeah, Baug. Tagev. Yeah. Tagev um, was an interesting guy. He moved to the U.S. in 1980 to be safe from the impending nuclear war, and he was well-known in the Boulder, Colorado area. He had long hair and a long beard and was known to scoff at authority. Sounds like a fun guy. And half the people in Boulder. <laughs> he believed that bathing on ice water would prolong his life, and he funded the Boulder Polar Bear Club, which I looked up and I couldn't find anything about it. I just found, like, polar plunge stuff. I mean, that's, but, like, that's like that whole, like, Wim Hof method of, like, you know, something about... I don't know. If you look at Wim Hof, you're like, just be cold all the time and you live longer. Well, I think that's part of, like, it's the 70 hard or 75 hard or whatever, where people are like, I don't... I work out twice a day. I don't drink. I take cold showers. Yeah. They don't take cold showers. They're lying. I like warm baths. Me too. Yeah. Nice. So see if there's bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, the, 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 no, this Ty Give guy, didn't he like kind of fancy himself kind of getting into the business of kind of cryogenically freezing people, right? Hold that thought. Okay. Tegev was, we have to go through his arrest record first. Of course. He was first arrested <laughs> in 1986 at the Stapleton Airport for joking that he was going to hijack a plane. Pre-9-11. They didn't fuck with it then either. He was then arrested again for trespassing on the Colorado University president's property. Tegev and his mother, Ode, um, set to build a disaster-proof house in Netherland in 1993. This concrete house looks like a castle and was said to be bomb, earthquake, fire, and flood-proof. Now, to the listener, it's not Netherlands. It's Netherland, Colorado. Am I pronouncing is... it wrong? I meant to say Netherland. Oh, no. It probably mean... just sounds... When, 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 when we're talking about like you know Bjorn and and you know, you know I feel like if you say if you say, if you, if you say Netherland too too often, you know, it's gonna sound like Netherlands. No, we are in America. We are in Netherland, Colorado. Colorado is a community that's like thirty minutes yeah. west of uh, Boulder, Colorado. You're really just like one line ahead of me on this whole thing. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So eventually, when Grandpa was shipped to Colorado, the frozen body was kept in a garden shed in the hills outside of Netherland. Colorado, 40 miles south of Estes Park and 45 miles northwest of Denver. Both Taigev and Ode were firm believers in cryogenics and wanted to start a facility of their own. They may have received another body with grandpas of a man named Al Campbell from Chicago. Poor Al was really kept in the crossfire of this. Aud had sold um, her father's home in Norway to support their business plan for their own cryogenics facility. Cryogenic suspension normally occurs at negative 320 degrees Fahrenheit, but their bodies were kept at negative 109 degrees Fahrenheit because they didn't have like the, they didn't have the, the ching to really. Do I mean, it's, it's 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 like spicy. It's 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 like the South Beach Miami 
of cryogenically freezing, you know. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, just a little warm. It's like, it's like the cryogenic freezing, but you keep a Hawaiian shirt on, you know. You, 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 you come out drinking a pina colada. Same thing. Exactly, exactly. So after about six months, Tegev got bored and claimed he would break the world record, record for ice bathing. And he invited local newspapers and dunked himself in a 1,500-gallon tank of ice water in February of 1994. And he was in there for an hour and four minutes breaking the world record. Another just legend. There's this Hanson guy, and now this Jagiev guy. It's just like just legendary men of performance that we're witnessing. You know. Yeah, these are just monumental names that I can't pronounce. Mm-hmm. So Jagiev, the grandson, was eventually deported due to an expired visa. He tried to evade the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and he declared himself a fugitive from justice, and was but was caught in spring of 1994. So he took on the occupation of... He wasn't between jobs. He was a fugitive from justice. Only in places like Boulder, Colorado, can I, I, can I feel like he can just commit all these federal crimes and just be considered a bit of a rascal. Loretto's daughter, Ode, stepped in to take care of the home and keep her father on ice since her her son, grandpa's grandson, got deported. Uh, Ode was evicted from the home due to a lack of electricity and plumbing that eventually caught up with the times that that was not allowed. He She was fixing to head back to Norway, which was threatening Bredo's frozen status because he, she couldn't bring him with. <laughs> and Ode was worried about her father's corpse. She spoke with a local reporter who then spoke to the Netherlands City Council. And hearing that there were two frozen dead bodies somewhere found in like a doomsday prepper's property in a mountain town in Colorado, made for a great headline. <laughs> and news outlets flooded Netherlands, which is a very small town. Right. Very private town, very tiny. Very good brewery there, though. Wish we mm-hmm. could remember the name of it because it's a great place. What was it called? Oh gosh, the brewery. The brewery was called. Let's look um, it up quick. Yeah, now, yeah, that's crazy. I can't for remember. a shout out. Yeah. I mean, there's only one. We're gonna look it up. Knotted Root Brewing. Knotted Root Brewery. Great place. Yeah. If you're ever there. And big, uh, big fans of the Buffalo Bills in there, and the band Fish. They do. They're big fish people. Yeah. Fish heads. Fish heads. You're right. Fish heads. <laughs> So an emergency town meeting was then also held because they heard that there are two frozen dead bodies on a property in their town. Small towns don't like that. So section 734 was passed of the municipal code, which made it illegal to store a frozen humid or animal body or any body parts of any kind on a personal property. Ode was found guilty of living in an uninspected building, their doomsday prepper house. They mm-hmm. did not get proper building code for that thing. And they got charged for changing a building's use without a permit and violating the town's zoning code. And she was deported. And the Al Campbell, dead guy number two, was reclaimed by his family. But with respect to keeping the the dead body frozen, wouldn't you say that that grandfather got grandfathered in? You're jumping the gun. You're ruining all my stories. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. You're just so so good at this. So Nederland wanted to bury Grandpa properly, but across the Atlantic, Tygev kept fighting via the internet. He publicized the problem on cryogenics websites and email list, and the grandfather clause, quote, grandfather clause, was created and allowed Grandpa Bretto to be remain frozen in his shed. So he is frozen in suspended animation, waiting to return to life once he is thawed and the proper technology is finally figured out. The original garden shed was falling apart, so Tough Shed and the Denver Fox radio station donated a new building to hold Grandpa's frozen body. He is now in an ice-encased aluminum casket inside a large wood crate in his brand new shed. Bo, the Iceman Schaefer, is an environmental consultant, is currently keeping Grandpa on ice. Him and his two others take a three-quarter ton of dry ice from Denver to Netherlands, like, monthly. Wow. And Brand Wickman, a Netherlands resident, is the current keeper of Grandpa, so that's whose property he's on. The Frozen Dead Guy Days is a festival held in Grandpa's honor in late March of every year. The people were very enthusiastic about this, and the festival brought thousands of people to the tiny town of Netherlands every year. The activities include a tour of Grandpa's shed, a Grandpa lookalike contest, a polar plunge, coffin races, and live music. Wow. Seems like really exciting. And yeah. it has moved to Estes Park this year because Nederland apparently was not having it Too with all the tourists. Rowdy. Too, Too rowdy. Too rowdy for the know. tiny town. So now it's in Estes Park. They released, um, I follow them, their yeah. like website, and yeah. they released like their, their music and their attractions. 
They're, it's serious. It's like the last weekend in March this year. God, I really want to go. I know. We we need to do that. 2024, yeah. that's our... I mean, we're going. All right. We're going to be there. We can't Deal. go this year? Okay. Right. Well, I mean, I, we can... Actually, no, we can't. I think... Because it's the last weekend, and I think it might be the weekend that you're out of town, and I have people coming to town. Oh, crap. Oh, well. I know. Well, let's is. both just... You ditch your bachelor party. I'll ditch my family. We're Done. going to Colorado. <laughs> Done. Yeah. But yeah. So that was stories about a bunch of frozen frozen dead things. Love it. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. <laughs> no. Mystical. You know, it, it all... It seems like any time that you put a, a, you know, a body on frozen ice, someone's just got to have some fun... You know, the, someone has to have some interesting explanations about how and why, you know? It is very exciting. I mean, I think like the whole preservation of like frozen, like when they were pulling the like, I guess it was tar pits, but like really anytime like something is preserved and people find it, it's so exciting. Mummies, oh, yeah. people love mummies. Yeah. But you know, that's mm-hmm. way more high tech than the frozen dead guys. But I guess I can cite all my sources for this. I always link all these in like the show notes mm-hmm. or whatever, but the first one was A Strange Case of the Minnesota Iceman by Darren Nash, a review of the Neanderthal, the Strange Saga, the Minnesota Iceman, part one and two by Darren Nash, who he like read the whole thing and did a whole review on it. It was very interesting. He had a lot of opinions. Uh, Northern Wilds Magazine article by L. Andre Warner, a Roadside America article, which I sent you something from this website. You go to this roadsideamerica.com and you type in like your town, like a town, mm-hmm. and it brings up, it's like a blog of like a bunch of weird stuff in oh, the really? town. It's actually kind of cool. It's cool. almost like Atlas Obscura, but like yeah. way, way more feels like it's from like 2003. That's cool. It's pretty cool. There's also and, an extremely lively subreddit about this. About Minnesota Iceman. Really? Oh, well, I should yeah. have looked at that. You know, people calling each other like imposters, you know, like well, it's, it it's like a really typical a of, like, hierarchical UFO community where everyone's trying to one up each the other. The ufologist yeah. on, lit on fire. And then I also, the Frozen Deck Guy his website is alive and well, and mm-hmm. the Legends of America are by Kathy Weiser Alexander. But yeah, I think that this, you know, they should just join these two together. I would say so. It'd be very exciting. But yeah. I also had, I wrote in here that. I have an email. I have a research project at gmail.com. Oh. Which, you know, if any of my four listeners want to send in anything that they want to request to get talked about, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna start sending you PDFs sh- of all my old handwritten notes of my thoughts and dreams. Okay. Send them over, research project at gmail.com. Perfect. <laughs> Uh, there's also an Instagram research project oh, at research project. I follow that. You follow yeah. that. Follow you that, you like all that. the posts, but you can also, you know, send some DMs on there. I will, send I will. me your thoughts and I dreams. I will hop in your DMs. I will say something rude. I will say something lewd. Um, I will not report And I will it. say something crude. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I will look for it in my inbox. You know? Okay. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. All right, good. Well, I think, you know, that was that was all the things I had to say. That was everything. Well, thank you. Uh, as <laughs> always, I am happy to be here. All right. Know? Well, bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye.